Please be seated. Stories are the language of the soul. They have a way of touching our hearts like few other influences can. This is why Jesus used storytelling so often to illustrate deeper truths. He knew the power of a story to cut through to the heart. These now famous stories are known as parables. They were Jesus' way to communicate important kingdom principles in a form that we could remember, in a way that would touch us. Although the details of these stories were fictional, the kingdom principles are not. They are true. They are eternal. Today, these stories continue to remind us who God is, what he calls us to be a part of, and how much he loves us. Christianity has an image problem. This quote has haunted my thoughts and my prayers for a decade. This quote comes from a best-selling book called Unchristian by Gabe Lyons and David Kinneman, a book that we have looked at in some of our classes here in the past. Let me say it again. Christianity has an image problem. What do you think about that? When I hear that, it causes all kinds of reactions and responses and, if I'm honest, a little bit of resistance. Now, wait a second. Who is saying this? What are they basing it on? Where is this coming from? I don't know if that's true or not. Should I really care what other people think about me or us as Christians? I use this quote today for the same reason I think the authors used it in their book. It gets your attention. It causes you to stop, to think. It gets a reaction. And it makes us think about this question of our image, the impression, the perception of the church or of Christians or more closer to home, me. That people in the world, that people who don't claim a faith in Christ have But even more, it gets to the heart of some very deep issues, some things that we need to talk about in the church these days. If we're going to be genuine disciples of Christ, who care about putting forth in this world a witness that is Christ-centered, biblically-based, and relevant, then yes, we must care about our perception. Today's well-known parable The parable of the Good Samaritan provides a platform for having this conversation. In many ways, Jesus' story here is a recentering story. It is a call back to what is truly most important. It is foundational. It is fundamental. This parable is not just about helping people, although it is about that. It is about so much more. It goes so much deeper than that. It gets to the heart of genuine discipleship and life in the kingdom of God. It begins in the text in Luke chapter 10. If you have a Bible, you might open it up. The text that was just read a few moments ago by Carson. A teacher of the law, the Jewish law, a lawyer, if you will, a scribe, comes up to Jesus with a question. And the question is this, how do I inherit eternal life? Now, most of us with our 21st century Western mindset, we know what he's asking. How do I go to heaven? But that's not exactly what he's asking. His question is so much broader, so much more comprehensive than that. What he's asking is, 
Jesus, how do I inherit the life of blessing that God has in store for his people? What does the abundant life look like? How do I get there? Well, Jesus responds and he turns the question back onto this teacher. Jesus says, well, what does the law say? Well, of course, this man teaches the law of Moses. He knows what the law says. And so he responds in verse 27. The law says to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. This teacher of the law reaches back into the Hebrew scriptures, into the the scriptures of Israel and says, this is what the law says. And he quotes the Shema from Deuteronomy. This love the Lord your God with all that you've got. But he also puts in there this, this law from Leviticus 19 verse 18. And love your neighbor as yourself. Now the second part of his answer was in great debate among Jewish rabbis and teachers of the law. Is the second part of this to love your neighbor as yourself, or is it to be holy as God is holy? And there was great debate, there was great discussion about this. But how does Jesus respond to the man, to his answer? He says, you're right, good job. You get a gold star, a blue ribbon, you answered correctly. And Jesus says, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Remember I said this is a re-centering parable. Jesus says, if you want real life, genuine life, abundant life, a life of blessing, then simply love God with everything that you have, with everything that you are, and you genuinely love your neighbor. Isn't that how Jesus would answer the question when someone came up to him and said, hey Jesus, what's at the top of the list? We have 613 commandments and then we have all these oral traditions from the jewish leaders hundreds hundreds thousands all of this jesus narrow it down what's at the very top and what would jesus always say love the lord your god with all that you've got and love your neighbor as yourself if we could just get that right if we could just do that But that's not the end of the story, is it? No. There's more to the story. The text doesn't say the teacher of the law said, thank you, Jesus. I'm going to continue to work on that. I'm going to continue to pour my heart into loving God and loving my neighbor. No, this man probably wasn't asking this question with a genuine motive. It's very likely he wasn't truly seeking to have this abundant life if it demanded something of him. He really just wanted to trap Jesus, to back Jesus into a corner, to get him to say something that could be used against him. And so this teacher of the law continued the conversation. Verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see, he wanted to justify himself. Look at those two words, justify himself. Why would anyone ever think it's a good idea to approach Jesus, the Son of God, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, with the agenda of justifying him or herself? 
Jesus, I want you to see how good I am, how deserving I am. I want you to see that I qualify as God's special person. Why would anyone do that? And yet, as someone has said, even today, everyone either comes to Jesus to justify oneself or to be justified by him. And I think that's true for us today. And probably only you know where you are. Do you come to a place like this to check a box, to show other people how good you are, to show God that you are faithful? Do you check or do you come here to justify yourself, to show that I'm not as bad as, oh, so-and-so, or, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good and I, I'm pretty deserving of God's grace? Or do you come into the presence of a holy God, falling on your face in humility, declaring that I am nothing without you? You see, to justify means to make good, to make right. We can't do that on our own. Jesus makes us good. He makes us right. But this man in our story wanted to justify himself. He wanted some parameters. He wanted to know exactly, now what are we talking about exactly, Jesus, when you say, love my neighbor? Let's draw some lines here. I need to know who I'm expected to love and also who I don't have to love. Because let's be honest, I don't want to love everyone. So let's be specific. Who is my neighbor? Isn't it funny how we so often just want to do the bare minimum? Some of you remember college. Some of you are in college. You remember you're in high school. What do I have to make on this test? What's the lowest grade I can make and still pass the class? What about at work? What's the least amount of work I can do and stay off the radar of my boss? Or you're at an event, how long do we have to stay before it's inappropriate to leave? Or how many times do I have to come to church to just sort of seem like a good Christian? This teacher of the law says, who is my neighbor? I need to know exactly who it is I'm supposed to love because I don't want to love anyone I'm not required to love. And when he asks this question, he knows in his own mind how Jesus should answer. Because for this Jewish teacher of the law, like most of his fellow Jews, there was one answer to that question. Who is my neighbor? Well, it's anyone who's just like you. It's the people nearby. It's the, the fellow, your peers, your, your fellow Jews, the, the ones who are in the covenant people of God. That's who your neighbor is. Even their own Jewish wisdom literature, which we can look at today, you can go back and look at it. And it instructs them, do not love sinners. Do not love sinners. So if a sinner is not to be loved, that means a sinner can't be your neighbor. There are neighbors, people like us, and then there are others, sinners, pagans, outsiders, foreigners. I'm supposed to love people like me, right, Jesus? Jesus responds with a story, a parable, a well-known parable one of his most famous parables and one of his most profound teachings. Verse 30 of Luke chapter 10. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, making the trip. It's about 17 or 18 miles. I've actually driven down that road. Obviously now it's a paved highway. It's really nice, but back then it was not. It was a rough 
arid, dangerous road. 17 or 18 miles, elevation change of about 2,500 to 3,000 feet going down to the Dead Sea, the lowest place on earth. There were cliffs, there were caves, plenty of places for crooks and criminals to hide out. In fact, at that time, it was called the Way of Blood, which fits right into the story. This man's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So we have a, a story here, and in this story, a man is traveling, and he's, he's mugged, he's, he's beaten, he's, he's left for dead on the side of the road, and a priest walks by, and, and you don't have to know much about Jewish history or even the Bible to know that a priest is someone that's pretty important religiously. He's a religious leader of the people. For the Jewish priests that went all the way back to the tribe of Levi, one of the 12 tribes, there were priests in the tribe, there were Levites, and then there were common tribes people within that tribe of Levi. And the priest was the one who, who had duties at the temple. He was sort of in charge of the temple, had a really important role. We might, it's not the same, but we might say it was an elder or a minister. Someone who is a man of God, who represents God among the people. Well, surely somebody like that would stop and render help to someone in need. But you know the story. You know he walks by. And then a Levite comes along, again, historically from the tribe of Levi, also someone who serves in the temple, not quite like a priest, kind of under the priest, but he has a public role in the worship, in the activities that happen at the temple. Again, a representative of God. Maybe he will stop. No, keeps on walking. And Jesus, notice how he says they do it. He says they walk on the other side. He includes that detail there. They don't just walk right by him and you know, offer a little help or, oh, I hope you're better, or oh, that's not good, and keep going. They avoid the man, walk on the other side. And then a Samaritan comes by. And if you know anything about Samaritans, especially in their relationship to Jews, you know there is tension. More than tension, there is hatred. There is disdain. The Samaritans came out of the time of the divided kingdom in the Old Testament, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. Assyria comes in and conquers the northern kingdom, takes many of the Jews out of the land, but leaves some. Those who are left begin to intermarry with the Assyrian women, something that God told them not to do because God knew that their religious influence would be brought into his people and into his land. 
They ignored God, they intermarried, and thus began families, and we have Samaritans. So then finally, when the Jews come back into the land, how do you think they received this new group of people, these Samaritans? Not well at all. These pure Orthodox Jews, Israelites, come in, and they see what they consider to be half-breeds, pagans, practicing their religion in a different place than the temple, doing things differently. So there was great disdain. There was great hatred between the groups. And in Jesus' story, the Samaritan is the one who stops, who helps the man, who goes out of his way to help the man. He loads him up. He takes him into town, gives the innkeeper some extra money, take care of him. If it's not enough money, I'll be back. Take care of this man. It's a familiar story, one that we teach our children. In fact, most of our kids could probably recite that story. But what does it mean? What is the meaning? What is the lesson? What is the application? What are we supposed to do with this story? If there's spiritual truth in these earthly stories called parables, what is it? Well, I think in this story, like many of Jesus' teachings, there are multiple layers and levels. And so if you start with just the surface layer, the first layer, the point is pretty clear, and that is we are to help other people in need. We are to love others. It should go without saying Christians should love others. But sometimes we need to say it because we need to do it. And sometimes we forget to help those in need in the name of Jesus. A few weeks ago, we were driving right out here on Bryant, and there was a car stalled with its flashers on right out here at the intersection of Ninth and Bryant. And we're driving, and I'm thinking, I have to stop. This car is literally in the shadow of our church building. I must stop. So we stopped, and this young lady was waiting in her car. She had called her husband. He was on his way, and the, you know she couldn't get the car to go. And, and so we... We didn't do much, but we helped her. We advised her, you know, it's probably not safe to sit here in the middle of the the road in your car waiting, so let's go over here and we'll wait with you. And we talked to her, and then soon her husband came and he managed to get the car going. And, 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 you know, that's great. I mean, we didn't really do much, but we were there with her. But you know that feeling. How many times have you driven by someone on the highway or on the road and someone's pulled over and you're like, oh, I should probably stop the Good Samaritan. I should stop. No, you passed and now is it too late to stop? Should I turn around and go back? I don't know what to do. What if they mug me? You know, all those things go through your brain. We should love others. That's not limited to just pulling over when someone's on the side of the road. We should love others always, every day, in many ways. That is, I think, the surface, not in the sense of being insignificant, but that is the surface level, the obvious, if you will, lesson, takeaway from Jesus' story. Love others. And for some of us, that's what we need to hear. We need to be pushed and prompted to love others, to be more loving, to be more caring, to be kind. But I think if you go maybe another layer, and by the way, as we continue to dig deeper and explore new layers, if you're like me, you're going to get more and more uncomfortable. But the second layer, I think, is not only love others, but love by doing. Love by doing. How do we know the Samaritan loved or expressed love to the man on the side of the road? 
Was it by his words? Was it by his thoughts? Was it by his intentions? No, of course not. How do we know he loved him? Because of what he did. And Jesus tells the story in such a way to emphasize what he did, to punctuate what he did. Look at how many verbs, how many action words are used. He saw him. He took pity on him. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine. He put him on the back of the donkey. He transported him to the inn. He took care of him. He left money. He did all of these things. You see, love does. It doesn't just wish. It doesn't just think. It doesn't just say. It does. Genuine love. James would tell us in James chapter 2, imagine someone is, is without clothes, without food, they're hungry, they need, they need clothing, and you walk by and say, bless you, be well fed, and be warm. He says, what good is that? That's no good at all. That's not love. True love demands action. When Jesus tells us to love our neighbor, he's not saying think well of them, wish them well, have good intentions, or say nice things. He's not even endorsing basic, basic tolerance. Tolerance is not the same as love. For Jesus, love is extreme. Love is radical. It's a self-emptying sacrificial, get involved, get to work, get your hands dirty, actions to bless others, to benefit others. So you love others, you love by doing, we're tracking, that sounds right, it's a challenge, but you're right, Jesus, that's what we should do, love our neighbor and show that love by what we do, but we need to keep digging. We need to look at a deeper level, a deeper layer here. We can't explore this well-known parable without acknowledging the plot twist that Jesus has in this story and what it means. Remember the first guy to walk by, the priest? He probably had lots of good reasons for walking by. The Levite, the second guy, he probably had good reasons for walking by. And then we have our third character. And if I am the, the Jewish teacher of the law, then I'm expecting, when Jesus is telling this story to me, that the third character will be a good Israelite man. I mean, remember in the tribe of Levi, we have the priest, we have the Levites, and then we have just the common, everyday tribes people. And so the third guy is probably a good Israelite guy, and he will stop and render aid to his fellow man. And we get it, Jesus. We know you often push back against the religious elite. You did not like their arrogance and their sense of legalism and their self-focus. And so this makes sense. The priest, yeah, he kept going. The Levite kept going. But this everyday common man, he had the heart to stop and render aid. But there's more to the story. You see, this is where Jesus turns the story upside down. And he completely changes the force and the impact of the story. Because there is a Samaritan in the story, isn't there? And if you ask this teacher of the law, hey, there's got to be a Samaritan in the story. Jesus wants to cast a Samaritan in the VBS drama here. So we've got to put him somewhere. Where are we going to put him? And this teacher of the law, who is 
pure Orthodox Jewish would say what? First of all, he'd say, no, I don't want a Samaritan in the story. No, he's got to be in the story. Okay, we'll make him the one who is beaten and robbed, left on the side of the road in the ditch. Make him that guy. And probably he deserved it anyway. So let's make him that guy in the story. And that means that the third guy, the good Israelite, comes along and he helps his enemy. He helps the, the one, the Samaritan, who is hurt. And this Jewish teacher of the law probably wouldn't like that version of the story. He wouldn't agree with it. But it wouldn't completely surprise him if he knew Jesus. But this version, this sanitized version of the story, has a problem. You see, it still centralizes all the power and all the privilege in the Jewish man, the teacher of the law. And by extension, where he finds his place in the story, and that is the third guy that comes along, who is, by the way, the hero of the story. You see, all the power, all the influence, all the privilege is centralized in that one place. But Jesus' story isn't sanitized. It is scandalous. He shuffles the characters around, and when he does, he blows everything up. In Jesus' story, he makes the powerless victim the Israelite man. And the hero of the story is the despised Samaritan. Don't miss that. That is extraordinary. That is significant. Well, why does Jesus do that? For shock value? Maybe a little bit. To get the guy's attention, to wake him up, to stir him a little bit. And it certainly would do that. But I believe even more, it was to emphasize and to underscore the upside-down nature of life and love in the kingdom of God. It was to blow up our existing paradigm about what it means to love our neighbor. It was to remind you and me that we don't always have to be the hero of every story. Most of all, it was to reframe how we view those that we despise here's the truth if we track with Jesus' story you are the one in the ditch I am the one in the ditch we are the one who is weak and powerless and we need someone to come along and help us and who does Jesus cast in that role for you who does he send along that road to come and help you out of the ditch? Remember I said it's going to be uncomfortable as we dig deeper. You know who Jesus sends? He sends the one that you despise the most. The person that you most struggle to love. That's who Jesus sends. And you know who that is. It's the Muslim guy from a Middle Eastern country. It's someone from the LGBTQ community. It's someone who reads Scripture differently and has different beliefs. It's a neighbor who votes blue or votes red or waves a flag on his house or in his yard that you can't stand to see every time you drive by. It's the boss at work who has it out for you. It's that ex-husband or ex-wife who blew up your family and broke your heart. 
It's that person that just continually seems to cause you grief. Who is it? Who does Jesus have come along and pick you up out of the ditch? Maybe it's that person, that person that you can't even say his or her name, the unnamed one. Did you notice when Jesus asked the teacher of the law, which one of these is a neighbor? He couldn't even say the Samaritan. He couldn't even say the word, the one who had mercy. Maybe for you, it's the one who goes unnamed because you can't say the name. Who is it? Who do you struggle the most to love? Jesus moved things around in this story, and when he did, he stripped away all the power and the privilege and the influence from the would-be hero, and he made him weak and vulnerable and totally dependent on someone else, and not just anyone else, but the one that he despised and hated the most. You see, sometimes we don't fully understand what love demands of us until we find ourselves in the ditch. Sometimes it takes empathy to activate love. Doesn't it? In her book, A Roadmap to Reconciliation, Brenda McNeil tells this gripping story about a diverse group of travelers who are in a bus together and they're going to different sites in our country, one region of our country that, that really had racist pasts. And on this one particular stop, they go into a museum and there are just all these disturbing photos of horrific lynchings of black people. Photo after photo after photo, story after story after story. It's disturbing, it's upsetting, it's unsettling. And afterwards, everyone sort of files back on the bus and the bus is full of people, but it's also full of all this tension and silence. And finally, some of the white people on the bus speak up, and understandably, they try to create distance between what they just experienced and, and who they are, and they say, you know, that wasn't us, and that was a long time ago. And as they're talking, suddenly a, a young black student stands up, and she's angry and she's upset, but she maintains her composure, and she expresses her anger with, with white people. And in her estimation, all white people are evil. And that's what she says. And as you can imagine, there's shouting and there's disagreeing and there's arguing and there's all this chaos going on. And then another student stands up, a young white girl. She stands up and she says, I've got something to say. And a hush falls over the crowd in the bus. And she says, I don't know what to do with what I just saw in there. I don't know what to do with that. I can't take away your pain. I can't remove it. But I want you to know I can see it. And I will fight with all that I have for you and for your children so they don't have to experience that. And then she began to weep. She began to cry. And as she cried, her makeup, her mascara began to run down her face making these dark trails no one said anything and finally one of the group leaders spoke up and said look she's crying black tears and it changed everything for that group of people 
Sometimes we need to cry the tears of others. We need to cross all those lines that we so gladly draw. And we need to feel others' pain so that we can better understand who is our neighbor and how we can love them. Did you notice what Jesus did with this lawyer's question? The question was, who is my neighbor? But Jesus really doesn't answer that question, does he? How does Jesus end the story in the application? What's the takeaway for Jesus? It's not, okay, here is who your neighbor is. He says, go and be a neighbor. Stop worrying so much about who is in and who is out. Stop worrying so much about all the lines that you want to draw. You can love this person, but you don't have to love that person. This person is like you, so they're okay, but that person is not, so you don't have to love them. Stop doing that and just be a neighbor. That's what Jesus says. He turns it completely around. So what holds you back? What holds you back from being that neighbor? There are probably a lot of good reasons, a lot of rational reasons. The priest and the Levite undoubtedly had good reasons. We can't defile ourselves, service in the temple, by touching a dead body or a guy who will, looks like he's soon to be dead. We have a family waiting on us at home. I've been away serving the Lord. They probably had lots of good reasons, and I'm sure you do as well. When talking about the reasons, I like the insights of Martin Luther King Jr. He said, maybe they were just afraid. Maybe it was fear. I think many times it is for us. He said, when the priest and the Levite came by, they asked one question, and the question was, if I do something, what's going to happen to me? If I get involved, what will happen to me. If I, if I don't just keep walking, it's going to cost me something. It's going to mean something. What will it do to me? But he says, the Samaritan comes along and he reverses the question. And the question he asks is, if I don't do something, what will happen to him? You see a huge difference there. The parable of the Good Samaritan is not just about being nice to people. It is this radical call on our lives to shift the entire focus, to, to have this new worldview, this new paradigm that removes self and looks to others. Not what will happen to me, what will this cost me, what will people say about me, what will they think about me, but what will happen to this person? What will happen to these people? Does Christianity have an image problem? Should we care? The research those guys did, asking for three years, all of these questions about perceptions about Christians, they summed it up with this list. And basically what the research shows was people outside the church, especially this younger generation, sees many Christians as hateful, hypocritical, and judgmental. And if you're like me, you hear that and you go, wait a second, that's not true. Is it? And should we care? If we care about making disciples, then we should care. If we're going to have a chance to bring people to Christ, then we should continually work to love our neighbors, not push them away. And don't hear that as being soft on truth. Hear that as being big on love. 
We don't have to choose between the two, truth and love. They're not mutually exclusive. Jesus embodied and exhibited both. Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples as we wrap up? John 13, he washes their feet. He tells them some important things. Do this for each other. And then he says, he says, the world's gonna know that you belong to me. The world's going to know that you're my disciples. How are they gonna know that, Jesus? By how we dress, by how we talk? What what is it gonna be? By what we know? Jesus, how are they gonna know that we are your disciples? By your love. Your love for one another. Your love for one another. You say, well, okay, that means love for just us, people like us. But it was also Jesus who said, love your enemies. Pray for those who curse you. It was also Jesus who said, love your neighbor. And to illustrate it, chose the two people that despised each other the most. You remember, if you've been around church for a while, we used to sing that devotional song. I'm not even sure what the name of it is, but the chorus went something like, they will know we are Christians by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. In our day, is that true? And what can we do about it? If we can help you today, let us do it. A couple of our shepherds and their wives would love to lift you up in prayer. They're going to be in the parlor, a little room right behind me. In just a minute, you can go there, visit them. They'll pray over you. Or you can come down to the front, and we will as a church family. We'd love to support you. Or maybe today you're ready to make that wonderful commitment, that life-altering, eternally changing commitment to give your life to Christ, to be buried in the waters of baptism, and let God raise you up as a new creation with a new purpose, a new joy, new salvation. We'd love to celebrate with you today. If there's something we can do, we invite you to come as we stand and sing. Let's stand. A common love for each other, a common gift to the Savior, a common bond holding us to the Lord. A common strength when we're weary, a common hope for tomorrow, a common joy in the truth of God's word. A common other a common gift to the Savior, a common bond holding us to the Lord, a common strength when we're weary, a common hope for tomorrow. truth of God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we are so blessed to be here this morning, to be unified together, to be bonded as we just talked about in love. 
Father, as Randy has taught us this morning, Lord, there is so many aspects to love that are hard, that are challenging, that it can be emotionally taxing. Um, but Father, I pray that you'll teach us to love as your son did. Father, I pray that you'll teach us to be good neighbors and to extend out to others and to try to show others who Jesus is. Father, I pray that um, we can be big in our, in our love that we show to, be, to each other, but also to those that may be outside of you. And I pray, Father, that we can also be grounded in the truth at the same time. Father, I pray that you'll give us the words to say, and I pray that, Lord, we can just be uh, your mouthpiece and be a light in the world that we're in, whether it's at school or at work. And Father, I just pray that together we can be unified together and can, can share that with others that we're around. Father, we're so excited about VBS, and I just pray that you'll bless us in that this week as we're extending out to the community, and I pray that you'll give us great success in that. We thank you so much, Father, for this morning and for getting to share this time together. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Appreciate that prayer, Daniel, and Randy, appreciate the call to...